You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Good morning, everybody. So we have a little more of a relaxed uh, time together this morning, so I thought we might start with a little interaction. Um, was anybody not here last night and didn't get to play? So I'm sorry if you won't get to play this morning then, but um, for everybody else. Um, last night we tried to just establish um, the idea that Jesus was smart, um, that he, when he said things, he wasn't just kind of writing scripture, um, that he wasn't... Um, just saying sort of religious, mystical things, but that he was actually a conscious person and that he had at least the amount of intelligence that you have. And I want you to actually think about that for a moment because so often we read, you know, like think Psalm 23. Was David capable of writing down thoughts that corresponded to the reality of his walk with God. I mean, we just seriously, we often just don't, we don't naturally think that the writers, especially of the Old Testament, but even the new, were as smart as we are even, right? We somehow think that ancient means uninformed or that ancient means because they wouldn't know how to you know, use an iPhone 10 without the button at the bottom. Because they wouldn't have known that, well then, well, what can they know about modern life, right? What can they? So we, we just tried to establish that Jesus is actually a master and that he knows what he's talking about, that he's worthy of listening to, that sort of thing. So anybody with, we didn't get to have any time to interact last night. Anybody with any thoughts from last night, anything that you pondered or discovered or comments from last night, just a little chance to have a little fun this morning before we dive into any teaching. She said that one of the remarks I made last night that it turns out that what we think salvation is determines what we think discipleship is. So that, for instance, um, you know, kind of the basic elevator speech about being a Christian when I was young went like this, say this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven. Now, let's just unpack that sentence for a minute. Say this prayer, what does that mean? It means to say the sinner's prayer, right? The sinner's prayer essentially being um, an outline of one theory of the atonement. So say this prayer, and then the next two words, any English teachers here, remember we used to diagram sentences, say this prayer so that. I mean, that's the heart of this sentence, that little pivot. Say this prayer so that when you die, and so the way that we've been explaining the gospel actually has nothing to do with life. It has to do with what happens to you when you die. So essentially what we've been teaching people inadvertently for many decades now, maybe even generations, is that that which is most fundamental about Christianity is what happens to you when you die. That what's really fundamental about Christianity is having a secure life, avoiding hell and attaining heaven. And as I said last night, I'm not in any way questioning the existence of heaven and hell. I'm not in any way um, saying that um, that's an unimportant factor. 
<clears throat> Here's what I am saying. The Christian story includes those things, but cannot be reduced to them. Now, I would die on that hill. But those things are an important part of the story. But when we reduce the whole story to those things, we have reduced the story to absurdity. And that we're almost, in a sense, not even telling the story anymore. And I'll show you why and how that works here in a minute. So say this prayer, so that when you die, you can go to heaven. And that's what has made, in the minds of so many people, discipleship to be optional. Like, discipleship is maybe what, like, super serious Christians do. But for the rest of us, you know, like, I'm just working and trying to raise my kids, and I'm thankful that my sins are forgiven, and that when this hard life is over, I get to go to heaven when I die. Um, that is most people's imaginations, and that's what I meant when I said what we think salvation means determines what we think discipleship means. Actually, the most common term in the Greek New Testament for salvation is a little word sozo, S-O-Z-O is the way we transliterate it into English. And it really is a term that's way closer to the Hebrew word shalom. It's a very holistic term. It means things like healed, rescued, delivered, made free. Um, it's, this, it's a sense of... Um, well, the, the, it's a sense of like I was walking on one path and now I'm walking on the other. I was kind of going wrong and now I've been set free to go a different direction. It's, a, it's actually a beautiful, very whole term, but we reduce it to simply the forgiveness of sins so that when I die, I can go to heaven. That's what I was getting at. Okay, stop right there. So what I was saying last night is just this sort of provocative idea of is if the fall had never happened and humankind had never sinned, would Jesus have had any meaning? What is the meaning of the second person of the Trinity except for the fall? And for most people, they, have, they would have no idea about, well, yeah, good point, Hunter. Well, what was the meaning of Jesus before there was creation, for instance? When there was merely a Trinity of beings, was there any point to Jesus? So yeah, carry on. Actually, uh, thank you for saying that because actually the, the early parts of Genesis pre-fall is actually a beautiful window into what Jesus would have been to you had there not been a fall. It would have been something like this. Look at this amazing creation. Let me explain it to you. Let me tell you how it works. Let me explain to you your place in it, what it means to be the cooperative friend of God, seeking to live constant lives of creative goodness in the, in the midst of this creation. Simply put, he would have been your leader. He would have been your creator, Lord. And so now just picture Jesus taking you by the hand and walking you through what we now know as the cosmos. That's what he could have done. He, he would have still been the, the Lord of the universe. He still would have been the leader of the universe. He, he would have been discipling human beings towards what it meant to be created in the image of God. Look at me. The job was just different after sin. So like think of the fire department before the hurricane that just blew through the panhandle of Florida. What was that little city that got so devastated? Huh? Mexico yeah, Mexico Beach. So think of the job of the fire department or something before that storm. Well, after the storm, the fire department just had to act a little different. 
Same with the second person of the Trinity. He still had meaning. He was still the Lord God. But after the storm of the fall, the job, in a sense, was just different. But so I, I only said that little provocative thing to help us get our minds around discipleship, that we don't reduce Jesus to something like Gugon. There's enough young parents in this room that you have to have Gugon at home, right? Remember those little yellow bottles full of little yellow liquid? And, and sometimes that's the way we treat Jesus is like, ooh, I got a little icky sin on me. And so spray a little Gugon, wipe it off. That's it. Like Jesus is just Gugon. And that's what I'm trying to get us to have a little different imagination. Then Jesus isn't just his blood that makes us whiter than sin. It's true. But it's just that, that that data point exists in this massive narrative. Are you feeling me? And that's what I mean when I say when we reduce this massive narrative to that one thing, we've lost too much. See what I'm saying? In order to highlight that one thing, we lose too much. And that's why discipleship's not intuitive to people. It's not intuitive to say, I'm an apprentice of Christ. What's intuitive is to say something like, I'm a Christian, or I'm an Anglican. Or I said the sinner's prayer, I'm going to heaven when I die, or whatever. But it's not intuitive for most people to say, I'm learning to live my life as Jesus would live it if he were in my place. That's not intuitive to most people. And that's what I'm trying to reclaim. I'm trying to reclaim this bigger story in service to giving us an imagination for being apprentices of Jesus. Yeah. Establishing that Jesus is smart, that he knows what he's talking about, that he's a conscious being, that he's able to represent uh, through his words and his ideas, reality. Um, let, let me remind you of uh, a couple of verses that we read last night. So just to get to feel this, these are Jesus's first words in public. So now if you've established that he was a con conscious being and that he was intelligent and he knows he's like breaking into public for the first time and kind of saying, this is what I'm all about. This is what's going on. He said some interesting things. He went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, you would think that coming into public for the first time Jesus would have said something like, I know you're all miserable, dirty little sinners, but don't worry. In three and a half years, I'm going to die for you, and it'll all be good. You can avoid heaven, avoid hell, and go to heaven. Right? Wouldn't you expect that that's what he would have said? I mean, if Christianity really is say this prayer so that when you die, you can go to heaven, you would have thought that Jesus would have essentially said something like that. But it's stunning that he doesn't say anything even remotely like that. So let's look at what he does say, attributing intelligence to him. So he comes into Galilee proclaiming the good news. Um, the good news is just simply, um, it would have been in Jesus's day, the announcement of something or someone great coming. So heralds, for instance, would have went ahead of a very important civic leader, or certainly if one of the great governors or somebody was coming, there would have been a herald in before the procession saying, good news. 
you know, so-and-so is coming, or good news, something is coming. So it was, it was just an announcement. That's, that's all it was meant to say. This is like big, you know, um, when I was a kid, they used to have Kmart blue light specials where there would be a blue light blinking somewhere where toilet paper was on sale two for one, right? It was Kmart blue light special. That was the announcement of good news. And that's all this is. This is a very similar thing. It's just, okay, blinking lights here, good news. And then secondly, if, I don't know if you have your Bibles with you, but if you do, you can look at Mark 1, 14 and 15, or look on your phones. Um, it's the good news of God. Now, this is a very important first idea. Because in, in the Greek New Testament, um, th this is in what's called the genitive case. And genitive case just simply means to show possession. So... Like, uh, in English, we would say, well, it's, it's that lady's purse or it's that lady's briefcase, right? But in Spanish, you say what? Yeah, the briefcase of the woman, right? Greek's the same way. So this is the gospel belonging to God. And the first thing this means is, it's not all about you. It's not about me. This is good news belonging to God. That, that it's God who launched this whole big story. And yes, something went wrong. But, but this good news, it's good news of God. Well, okay, Jesus, that, that's kind of a big deal. That it's not first of all about me, which means it's not first of all about my sins. It's first of all about the Father. But okay, what of it? And then he says, the time is fulfilled. Well, what the heck does that have to do with your sins and them being forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die? I mean, what a strange way to talk about the gospel. The time is fulfilled. What time? Well, you may know that in the Greek New Testament, there's two words for time. One is chronos, which just simply means the unfolding of time or picture a clock going around, you know, in circles. That's chronos. But there's another Greek New Testament term called kairos, and it means a particular important sort of pregnant moment in time. And that's what Jesus says here, that the time is fulfilled. Well, what does he mean? Well, I'll never forget the way um, I first read uh, a way that Dallas Willard translated this in The Divine Conspiracy was um, that everything to me is preliminary, and now it's all being fulfilled in me. So here's what, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying to a bunch of people who would have known this story, hey, you know, creation, fall, flood, calling of Abraham, patriarchs, judges, kings, prophets, John the Baptist, that whole big story is preliminary to me and I am the fulfillment of it. The time is fulfilled. All that whole big story is being fulfilled in me. It's being completed in me. We just sang that Jesus is chart and compass. Really? You know how I jokingly said last night that when we don't know what to do with the big Christian idea, we make a plaque and put it on the wall or we put it in a song? 
classic instance. What are alternative charts today? Come on, let's play a little bit. What are alternative charts? Good leadership principles. Okay. Yep, Google Maps. What about having your, you know, the American dream or having the dream house or the dream career, right? Those are charts and they give meaning to many people's lives. So it is one thing to sing, oh Jesus, you're both chart and compass. Really? Where in, in this passage, Jesus is actually saying, I am the chart. Like, all that, that that chart meant, it's summed up in me. This is what, for instance, the writer of Hebrews means when he says that Jesus is the express image of God. He, he is everything that God intended. He is humanity as God intended. He is Israel as God intended. This, this is what God intended, and God is, in a sense, restoring everything through Jesus being what God intended humanity to be. And so it is this long story of Israel is now at the beginning of its completion. But see, we've been telling ourselves a story, not that we are entering into a big, long story of which Jesus is the fulfillment. We've been telling our, our story not at creation. We tell our story with reference to what? Something very near creation but a big bummer moment, like if we were graphing it, it would be a really low point in human history. What do we call that? The fall, right? Well, I know it's a Saturday morning and we're at retreat, but some of you are alert enough to say, can't trick me, Hunter. I know there was something before the fall. And if we were graphing it, it would be really high. And in fact, God said it was all really good. What's that? Creation. But the theologians among us are saying, can't trick me, Hunter. I know there was something before creation. What was before creation? A trinity of beings, of which the Son was the second person. And so if you have a trinity of beings, it means you have relationship. If you have relationship, it means you have activity. So I know this is like mind-blowing because we tend to measure activity now through these things called space and time. But before there was space and time, there was personhood. Now you go sit with that for a couple hours. Go sit with what does it mean that before there was this and this and the chair you're sitting on, there was personhood. What does it mean to you that lying behind the material world is personhood? That it's a person who spoke, let there be light. And let there be humankind in our image. And this is the reality that Jesus knows. This is why when he teaches, people go, we've never heard anything like this before in our life. We've never heard anybody teach with this kind of authority. Well, of course you haven't. The scribes and other Rabboni's, the scribes and other rabbis were quoting each other. They were doing like what I do. I quote my favorite peeps. Dallas and Eugene and Tom Wright, you know, I quote my favorite peeps. Why? They're sources of authority for me. Well, Jesus never quoted anybody. He said these crazy things like, verily, verily, I say unto you. And everybody would go, what? The H-E double toothpicks? Like, what is that? No one talks like that. 
I say to you. And he dared to say things like, I am. That was like crazy. No one talked like that. But he was from, lived in, and was oriented to a completely different reality. He wasn't oriented merely by the fall that he saw all around him. As I said last night, the literal hatred that the Jews had for each other in their tribal factions, the hatred they had for the Samaritans, and the utter disregard for the pagans, what the New Testament calls the ethne. They, they didn't even, like, they were even, they were, like, whatever you think of racism today, multiply it times about 100, and you've got how the Jews felt about the pagans. And Jesus walks into the middle of that. I, want, I so wish I could wave a magic wand over you right now and that you would get this. Jesus walks into the very midst of that, but is oriented from a whole different reality. That doesn't come, become his reality. Now, I don't know about you, but let me just say of myself, I do not presently have the character to handle my newsfeed. I don't. How many times a day are our hearts supposed to break? I mean, are we supposed to still be heartbroken over, what was the name of that city? Mexico. Are we supposed to be heartbroken over Mexico Beach or the state of our civil discourse and pipe bombs? Or are we supposed to be heartbroken over the, that bridge picture in Honduras? Who can ever forget that? What about the guy that was just murdered in Saudi Arabia and the breakdown of everything that's happening now in the Mideast? Like how many times a day can your heart be broken? Mine can't be broken that many times. I don't presently have the character to handle my newsfeed. I don't. And if I don't keep myself oriented in something previous to and transcendent of that newsfeed, I will break down in it. Because that, that doesn't even count broken friendships, estrangements from parents, crappy bosses. I'm the working poor. I mean, it doesn't even count, our, like our normal lives aren't included in the screaming that these screens do to us. And I don't even, I refuse to listen to talk radio. I can't do it. I don't need more screaming in my life. I limit my cable TV to just enough to like kind of understand, you know, see what's going on or something because otherwise what happens is it becomes your reality. And when it becomes your reality, you're just drowning and you can't help anybody else swim. Can't even help yourself swim a lot of the time. And this is why it's so important to me. It's not just like a little, oh, interesting, sort of a little interesting theological angle for a retreat. It's like fundamental to me that Jesus entered his actual life. Because this is a tricky bit. Because Christians aren't dualists. We don't say that this life matters, but the life that God intended before creation, that's what's real. Christians aren't dualists. We don't say that only the spiritual life matters, only the spiritual or immaterial is real. We don't say that at all. Christians are not dualists. Christians are realists. It's just that our news feeds are lowercase, are real, but lying behind that and surrounding it and making meaning of it and giving it its telos or its completion is a capital R reality. And this is what Jesus walked in. 
He walked in lowercase r reality with a capital R frame of reference. Are you feeling me? Well, what was that frame of reference? The time is fulfilled. This whole big story, it, you not only have pre-creation Trinitarian intentionality, are you feeling me here? But this long story has a telos. That's the Greek term for completion or fulfillment. And this is what Jesus knew. This is why he was such a peaceful dude. Right? Have you ever heard people just like talk about Jesus? Oh, yeah, man, he was so peaceful. Right? If you do like sort of man on the street, woman on the street interviews, you know, who is Jesus to you? What you're often going to hear is, man, that dude was so peaceful. All right, let's just assume that that sort of, you know, intuitive reaction to Jesus is true. Why? Why was he a non-anxious presence who was able to stay completely connected to the brokenness of humanity and yet stay fully differentiated as the second person of the Trinity? How was he able to do that? Like I just said, I cannot stay connected to the brokenness of humanity as a non-anxious presence. I don't, pers I don't presently have the character. I mean, maybe you do, I don't. I either get indifferent or anxious. I either have to separate myself from it or angry. Yeah, if something happens where I either have to separate myself from it because I get codependent with it or angry or whatever, right? So I either have to ignore it or, you know, all kinds of sort of bad things happen. But Jesus, he didn't roll that way. Well, there's a reason for it. It was because of the reality in which he was living. The reality he was living from, the Trinitarian intention for creation, and the knowledge that despite the brokenness all around him, the tragic brokenness of Israel, the very chosen people of God, the tragic brokenness amongst the ethne, the others who were living so hopelessly. And, and see, we just get little icons of this in the New Testament, like that woman at the well. She's an icon of tragic, powerless brokenness. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, well, your sins are forgiven because you've been sleeping around with guys. That is not the point of that story. The point of that story is your powerlessness, your weakness, your hopelessness is healed in me. And that you don't have to live that way anymore in the kingdom of God. You're always safe in the kingdom of God. Well, can you see how that's a word from a different reality? And without a word from a different reality, all that maybe could have been left for her would have been what we think of as sort of social programs. And I'm not saying social programs are bad or wrong. I'm just saying they're, they're a different kind of thing. That's a category, that's a different sort of category than, a, than the category of like literally being born again, as Jesus said to John. Um, I mean, to Nicodemus in John. And, and I mean in a sense that, wow, in Christ, I actually become a different person. And I have a whole different orientation to God and to reality and to my life, to my inner self, to my social self. Like everything begins to be transformed. That's what I mean by born again. I become this different sort of person. And so you see what I'm saying? Without that word from another reality we get stuck in these kind of religious reductionisms. All right, maybe I should stop there. That's a lot. And give you a chance to respond. Questions, comments, rebukes, rebuttals. We have a little more leisurely time this morning. So 
good for you to talk to. Yeah. He certainly doesn't remain disconnected from time. I would say that he exists in a category of which we don't have good adjectives for. Right? Like, like I think he's capable of being both in time and outside of time. But like, what is it? Sure. But, but like, what does that mean? You know what I mean? I, get, I think it kind of explodes all our categories. But being God and all and the inventor of time, I would guess that he has the ability to deal with whatever's real. Someone else? Yeah. I was just saying, whoa, I was just saying that, um, thinking about what he was saying in reference to the gospel reading, like what a great picture of what it means to operate within the capital R reality when all the facts of the little R reality seem contrary is that picture of Christ sleeping in the boat and like sort of that, like how dare he rest when there is, you know, such danger and such peril and so many reasons to be anxious and, um, just that that's a promise echoed throughout scripture, you know, that unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain is vain. You stay up late and the Lord giving sleep and like how even, I think sometimes actually more for Christians that feels hard because we feel like we have this commission to go fix everything. Um, and like instead being called to rest in this larger reality that's op that, that answers those facts in ways we don't understand. Thank you. Anybody else? Comment? Question? Yeah. Here, I guess we're, I guess we, it, no, it's hard to hear in this room. Yeah, I, just not a fully formed thought, but I think sometimes it's hard to square the capital R reality, Jesus fulfilled, with the lower R reality of here we are 2,000 years later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Newsfeed, et cetera. Yeah. And so say more about that, meaning that, um, it feels like we're not making much progress in 2,000 years. Right. It's yeah. not like, look, it's been at this great incline yes. of growth for 2,000 yeah. years. We can look back mm -hmm. 500 years later and how far we've come. Yeah. We've come far technology-wise, but yeah. uh, soul-wise. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Yep. And oftentimes the, the headline for that is, um, how do you square an all-powerful, all-loving God with the continuing suffering, the continuing human pain, et cetera, yeah. Yes? Along, I'm the child of the 70s. As along the lines of be saved and that's your life, there was this sense of people talking about um, Jesus is gonna come back someday and we hope mm -hmm. it's soon. But for thousands of years, people have been thinking that way. So I'm trying to shift my thinking from Jesus, isn't it bad enough? When are you coming back to, okay, pull out of that timeline, mm -hmm. linear thinking that I have, and how can I talk about what you're talking about? How can I implement that going forward? Because that's a hard thing to overcome is, well, yeah. Jesus is going to fix it soon. Right. Well, it's been thousands of years, and he hasn't. And I'm not going to live a thousand years, so what can mm -hmm. I do now yeah. and tomorrow to get my mind out of that? Hope. I mean, we, we want to hope for him to come back, but yeah. it may not happen for another hundred years. Yeah. So that's that's where I'm taking what you're thinking or mm -hmm. talking about, and I'm looking at it in that light to to overcome that process of my brain. Yeah. So. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Um, I just 
I loved what you said about personhood. And and that, yes, we could we could spend hours just with that. But one thing is that hit me is a lot of times what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean, you know, we get we reduce it the spiritual life you know our christian life the faith you know and it's and it's this little side thing uh it's supposed to be almost like one interest among many that you don't overemphasize too much don't let it mm -hmm. don't let it get in wet in the way of the basics the real right. important stuff mm -hmm. and it's like well the basics really is personhood it's 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 relational and beginning in god and i, I don't know that's that turns everything, that mm. turns everything upside down. Yeah. Like, like somebody said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. All right. So we'll do more of this as we go along. So, all right, Jesus, the time is fulfilled. What the heck does that mean? Well, look at the next words. The kingdom of God. Now, that, again, that translates... Um, Kingdom is Basileia in Greek. Um, uh, so this is the kingdom belonging of God or belonging to God. Um, and so Jesus says the great good news is that the kingdom of God, something, it's something about the kingdom of God. And the verb form of Basileia means to rule or to reign. And so to Jesus, the great pivotal news in all of human history is that the rule and reign, the sovereign authority of God, the expression of this person that I've been talking about is now on the move, or the next phrase is at hand, but we'll get to at hand in a moment. So Jesus is saying something like, God is now present to humanity through me in a way that he has not been since man was banished from the garden. So, from the, so Jesus is now with and uh, among humanity, present to them, proximate to them, in a way that God has not been since mankind was banished from the garden. And so that, of course, has implications for all aspects of human life. And it, it, it is that life of God that's mediated to us through Jesus like as we give our, as we learn to derive our life from the kingdom of God, learn to live it within the rule and reigning of God, the expression of this person, God, then what happens is that our transformed hearts are constantly enlarged and animated towards the least and the last and the left out. We suddenly find ourselves in tune with God and this broken world. In honor of our dearly departed Eugene Peterson, Maybe, of all the things that he taught me, maybe the thing that I most treasure is Eugene's insistence on learning to be present to life. I, I can just hear his voice saying words like, notice, alert, presence. I mean, that was just so fundamental to his spiritual theology. And, and it's as we learn to live our life in the ruling and reigning of God and, um, and derive our life from it, 
that we too can walk through this life the way Jesus walked through that pool of Bethsaida and he saw the one person with a mat that his father was healing. He notices what his father's doing. I mean, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. Well, where does that come from? This is what Eugene was trying to get all of us to cultivate, the ability to notice God at work in our lives. And to say, oh, this is the one person that in this moment in my life, God is drawing me to. This is the one for whom I'm meant to mediate the kingdom of God. This lease, last, left out, broken, marginalized, whoever. Or totally central person who's just living with a broken heart. And so Jesus says that this reality has come near. So maybe the way to think about it is Bluetooth or Wi-Fi. It's a reality you can't see, but with a couple of little uh, bits of effort, you can connect yourself to it. Um, Willard used to tell a really charming story about this. That he grew up in very rural southern Missouri, extremely rural, dirt farmers, poor. And so when Dallas was a little boy, I forget how old now, but you know, maybe eight, 10 years old, they didn't have electricity. But at some point, Dallas would tell this story, the Missouri Electric Company brought power from some big city down to his little dirt farming poor town. Well, um, Dallas said that then, then suddenly we had these things in the wall and you could plug into this new reality that was at hand and you didn't have to beat rugs anymore. You could hoover them. And Dallas would say the thing that changed our lives forever was light. So it changed everything that you could then just click on a light when the sun went down. No farmer had ever had that. I mean, you had candles or whatever, but you could now actually do human work at night that could never have been done before. You could do human play that had never, it, it literally changed everything. It was at hand. All we had to do was plug into it. And this is what Jesus is saying. There's a reality here and it's at hand. It's right here. It's proximate to you and you can connect with it with just a few, a few simple arrangements of your life. Okay, so that's, like, like that's the statement. The good news of God is breaking in through me, and that kingdom of God is at hand. That's the big statement. Now, again, I only mean this sort of playfully. Like, you wrestle with that. That's what Jesus said the good news is. That's what Jesus said the gospel is. Now, if you've heard other things your whole life, I get it, so did I. But I would suggest you have the intellectual and spiritual integrity to wrestle with that. This is why I started, was Jesus smart? Is he competent? Did he know what he was talking about? That's why I started with that. Because he is saying this is reality. And we're left then as disciples, as apprentices, to wrestle with him in that. So, okay, that's the big statement. And now Jesus gives two imperatives, meaning, okay, now here's what's expected that you would do based on this being the case. And the first is that you would repent. 
Now, repent translates the Greek term metanoia. Noia is the, the basic Greek root word for thinking or cognition. Meta is a prefix there, means something like again or after. So, so to repent means something like have a second thought or have an afterthought or rethink your thinking. So it, it means, um, it, it's like a summons. It's, um, it's meant to help us see contrast. Um, it's, a, it, it's like a demand for a definite faithful response. It, it means something like to stop doing what you're doing for a moment, question your worldview and your filters, and then based on that, review all the aspects of your life. So let's switch metaphors. A minute ago, I, I pictured like a graph, right? Like high, low. So let's switch metaphors and let's take the logo of Res and, and make that something like a, a bullseye, right? You following me here? Like in your mind's eye, make that like a bullseye. And if we were labeling it, we would say that's the telos of God. And that God had like shot an arrow and it's going through time and it's gonna hit that telos. And what repent means, it means, to, it means to invite us to notice the places in my life that are malaligned to that. Like my life is an arrow shooting where it's gonna hit the end in resurrection, right? Or my life is an arrow where its current trajectory is going to hit the edge of the screen. Like, I'm not actually aligned with this big story that Jesus is talking about that began with pre-creation Trinitarian intentionality and that, that, that's going to hit that telos. Uh, my life is not actually well aligned to that. In some places, I'm mal-aligned to that. In some places, I have brokennesses, brokenness or darknesses or... Um, choices, my, my will is bent in a certain direction. The affective parts of me, my loves, my desires are maybe aimed in a little different direction. That's why I said last night, you are what you love, and we may not love what we think we love. So repentance is precisely an invitation to examine that, to rethink your thinking, to, to um, kind of uh, analyze, doesn't sound right. Notice your, the bent of your will. Um, notice the trajectory of your loves and your desires. And then just begin to rethink that. Um, this is what Jesus was trying to help people do with the parable of the treasure buried in the field and the parable of the pearl of great price. He was trying to help people see, remember, do you remember those parables quickly? What, what did they begin with? The kingdom of God is like. So my announcement of the inbreaking of the kingdom, that's like a pearl of greatest price. Would you rethink all of your other pearls and leverage them to get this pearl? Or if you were like a landowner, would you rethink the meaning of owning land to leverage all that to get this one piece of land that had the treasure in it? Those parables were meant to help people clarify their thinking to help them notice their real loves, to notice the bent of their will, their real desires, so that they could have clarity about it. And this is the same thing that's happening in Jesus's call to repent. Well, then secondly, he says, believe. 
Now, believe in the New Testament includes cognition, but it can't be reduced to it. Like, so believe doesn't mean, like, believe that Paul wrote Romans. Or it doesn't even mean believe that, you know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It, it, it includes that kind of belief, but again, it can't be reduced to it. To believe, the kind of belief that Jesus is calling for here is that we would place our confidence in him. Because think of the assertion. The, the assertion is astounding. And this is what C.S. Lewis means when he says, I don't want to hear any BS about Jesus just being a good moral man. You don't say you're the fulfillment of this whole human story unless you're crazy, demonized, or right. Jesus didn't leave, C.S. Lewis would say, the option open to us to say that he was just a good moral teacher or something. He didn't mean to leave that as an option. Right? I mean, if he says, I'm the completion of this whole big story, and I'm sorry, what's your name? Huh? And Orion said, but I'm also the assurance that though it's been 2,000 years, this is going to hit its telos. So I am both fulfillment and, sorry for the big word on a Saturday morning, but eschatological. I'm the beginning of the end. I'm the assurance that no matter what it looks like, no matter what we see on our news feeds every day, no matter how broken our families of origin might have been, I am the assurance that the pre-creation intention of God is going to be completed, no matter how long it takes. Well, that's some big stuff. Okay, look at me. Jesus is saying, place your confidence in that. It's just this simple. You would not learn stand-up bass from someone who you didn't believe knew bass. You wouldn't learn French from somebody who you didn't think knew French. And you won't follow Jesus unless you actually have confidence in what he is saying here. You might be religious. You might be somehow spiritual in the way we use that word. But until you come to the place that you actually place your confidence in Jesus, the way you would simply place your confidence in a math tutor, because you believe she can teach you math. Until you come to that place that it's that intuitive to you, that I have placed my confidence in Jesus, I have taken him as my master for life, and I am his apprentice, and I am following him for the sake of others. That's what's in play here. What's in play here is act as if you believe what I'm saying is true. That's what they were doing with their present religious beliefs. They were acting as if their ancestry mattered. Look, this is really important. I, I'm almost done, but you need to hear this. They were acting as if their ancestry was important. And what did Jesus say to them? I don't want to hear this business about Abraham's my father. They were acting as, as if land was important. But Jesus said to them, you use the land to exclude your brother. They were acting as if temple was important but they turned it into a den of robbers. They were acting as law was important, but they'd used it as a way to manipulate people. And Jesus had to place heavy burdens on them and to create insiders and outsiders. And Jesus was saying like, no, 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 none of that is it. And never hear Jesus being mean or judgmental. Hear him always being insightful. Are you feeling me here? 
He was insightful. He was, he was like amazingly insightful. He was never being mean. He was just simply saying this has like gotten perverted and yeah, the land is important. Temple's important. Torah's important. It's all important, but it's all gotten sort of mucked up. And what I'm asking you to do is place your confidence in what I'm saying to like cut loose from all those misunderstandings. Place your trust in Jesus and his announcement of what God's doing on the earth and follow him. You might say, well, Todd, you seem pretty convinced of this. Like, why? Well, here's why. Uh, most people would agree that amongst the, most te- amongst the greatest teachings of Jesus, or perhaps the greatest teaching of Jesus, is the what? Sermon on the Mount, right? Now, you know, somebody might say the Olivet Discourse. You know, someone might say a parable or something. But for most people, for most of time, Jesus is most famous for his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Well, how does the Sermon on the Mount end? At the end of chapter 7 in Matthew, there's this little parable that says, anybody who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is what? Like a foolish person who built their house on the sand. But anybody who hears these words of mine and places their confidence in them, trusts them, acts as if they believe they're true, has a human life built on the rock of this story. And the God, the capital R reality that underlies this story. And I know it's hard that we live in our small R realities into this story. I don't have any sort of perfect life. I'm not a perfect person. I didn't have perfect parents. My wife's battled with deathly cancer for 20 years. I've had cancer twice. My friends die. Peterson just died. I don't live some sort of perfect life. I'm like, I don't live a life without challenges. Like, I'm challenged, I feel like, to my capacity almost every day. But okay, what of it? Like, I didn't just sort of make up my own reality? You know what my favorite social justice issue is today? It's not creation care. Sorry if that's important to you. I, I, I agree with you. I love creation care. But it's not creation care necessarily. It's not even necessarily our politics or something. You know what to me my most painful, painful, if I could do something about what I consider to be a social justice issue today is the notion amongst virtually every human being in the developed world that they have to create a self. That is a burden on humanity far bigger than anything else, that I have to create a self rather than the freedom of I can discover a self in this huge story. It's from this story that I can discern and discover what it means to be human in the image of God, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I can rethink all this. I can actually do what Jesus said. But you see, if we hear Jesus saying, look, you slimy little shitheads, Get your act together. If you hear this as him pointing and angry and judgmental, you're going to hear it one way. But if you hear Jesus coming as the revealer of what's actually true and says, look at me, what you see in me, everything you love about me, this is the fulfillment of everything God intended for Israel. This is the fulfillment of the church. This is the fulfillment of humanity. I am the explanation of this huge story from design intention to divine completion. I am the meaning of it. 
If you can see that, I beg you, I hear Jesus saying, to see that. And if you can see that, then you can rethink everything. And you can place your confidence in me. And you can be human as God intended. What if that's the great invitation? What if it's not a great moralism? What if it's not a, well, you slept with the wrong people, you smoked the wrong stuff. I did every sin you could do in the 70s. There's no sin in the 70s that I didn't do. But I've never thought that somehow that's the story, that that's the totality of this story, that I smoked the wrong stuff and slept with the wrong people. Like, okay, I mean, I get it. That was bad stuff. I don't mean to say it wasn't bad. But, but that moment of forgiveness was a bursting into a different reality. The night I was converted, I was converted in a classic Jesus people, um, uh, like stereotypical moment. Like, is Greg Laurie on the radio here in Austin? He probably is. A new beginning. So Greg's like a famous evangelist in Southern California. He, he's kind of, you know, second to Billy Graham. Well, in the 70s, when I got converted, Greg just had a church in Riverside, California. I was playing baseball at Cal Poly. One of the guys on the baseball team kept bugging me to go to church. I finally said to Debbie, who I was living with, my girlfriend, now my wife of 43 years, I said to Debbie one day, God, let's just go to church. This kid's driving me crazy. I mean, like, what could happen at church? Let's just go so he'll shut up and leave me alone. Because seriously, he'd bug me at the locker. He'd bug me during batting practice. He'd bug me in the shower. I'm like, dude, I'm naked. Leave me alone. <laughs> he would bug me everywhere. And so we go to church, and lo and behold, we find ourselves in that typical Jesus movement way of getting instantly, profoundly converted. And, 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 and it was much like a Billy Graham crusade where, you know, Greg would stay there and say, now those of you who have just given your life to Christ, if you'll follow Brother Fred over here, he's going to take you in his side room, and he's going to give you some materials. And so we were given some materials, and one of the things we were given was this little cartoon booklet that Greg had written called Ben Born Again. That was the name of this guy. Ben Born Again's New Believer's Growth Book. And so you're supposed to go home and read these scriptures. Now, this is a true story. I'm laying in my bed, Pomona, California, and I'm looking up these scriptures like you're supposed to. So one of the first scriptures, you know, like assurance of salvation scriptures was 2 Corinthians 5.17. You know, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation, right? You know that scripture, all the old is gone. Behold, everything's become new. Well, I'm brand new. I've never read the Bible before. In fact, when we went to that little room on the side, they had to explain to little pagans like me that double I, double I Corinthians colon 57.17, they had to explain to us what that meant. That double I Corinthians is actually second Corinthians. It's a book in the New Testament. And the, and the number that's on the left of the colon, th that's the big numbers on the pages of the Bible. That means chapters. And, and the number that's on the other side of the colon, that corresponds to the little teeny numbers on the page. Those are called verses. Th I, that is a literal story. I had to be shown how to look up verses in the Bible. Well, because I'd never read the Bible before, I forgot to stop at verse 17. I didn't notice the little numbers. I just kept reading, and I got down to verse 20 that said, and you are Christ's ambassador. It's as if God is making his appeal through you. And I stand here today because that reality exposed exploded into my life as a 19-year-old kid. That my sins weren't merely forgiven, but that I was caught up into this big story. Ambassador of what? Have you ever asked yourself that? 
ambassador of what? God's kingdom. And I'm literally standing here today some 45 years later, however long it is, because this reality of the kingdom of God exploded into my life. And then thankfully, later people came into my life to help me explain it as I'm striving to do with you. But I just wanna say to you before we go, that what stands before you in Jesus' words is not the great religion. It's not the great moralism. It's not the great judgment. What stands before you is the great invitation to place your confidence in Jesus and to experience humanity as God intended in what Jesus used as an analogy of a life built on the rock. Amen. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.